What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Computer, this is Data. I'm an android. I'm a... basketball? I was processing all of the information. Processing. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball? Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. Hello, and welcome to the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. My name is Tom, joined as always by Tim, a.k.a. Cranjus McBasketball. And Tim, we are going to the finals, baby. The Lakers won a game five against the Denver Nuggets, 117-107. It was a pretty dominant win from the Lakers, even though the Nuggets made it interesting in the third. But Jamal Murray's injury and Nikola Jokic's foul trouble made it almost impossible for this Denver team to come back from a 3-1 deficit for a third straight series. But man, we're going to the finals. It was a great game. The Lakers played hard. I loved how focused LeBron was at the end. Like all these photos of him in the finals hats with confetti around and he's just mean mugging the camera. It was great. (laughs) We're having a great time. We're going to break down some of the stuff that we saw and hopefully talk about what we will see in Miami or Boston previewing as best we can before they play game six tonight. So Tim, man, what are your initial reactions? Like what a good Sunday, right? How are you doing? (laughs) Lakers in the finals, baby. That sleep hit different, as, as our boy Roger would say. Um, I'm, I'm not doing any victory laps or anything like that. Even like like I'm really happy to be in the finals, but the job is not done yet. But it, it's still a surreal experience. I think today I've been much more reflexive of just reflecting on what we've gone through the past decade. And, and I do want to add some perspective. Like I, I see people being upset with Laker fans, like, oh, you guys are so privileged. So you go through a decade of, of not going to the finals and you act like it's, I don't know, other teams, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I, I get that. It still feels like a long time. And, and no one should feel bad about feeling happy. We went from, I, I mean, just this is really the first time since the two of us have been analyzing anything that the Lakers have been this good. It's really the first time since I've joined Twitter in what, like 2013, 2012, that the Lakers have made the playoffs. Actually, no way. They got swept by the Spurs, I think, in 2012, 2013, which is right around when I joined. But anyway, you know, 14th place, 14th place, 15th place, 14th place in the West, 11th place, 10th place. And then to just ascend to the finals without that slow build is, I mean, a little bit of whiplash, but but I'm happy with it. I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, all of those long games of... Robert Sacre and Chris Kamen and Wesley Matthews. And like, it wasn't just that the team wasn't getting to the finals or meeting that standard of of a championship. It was just that we weren't good at all. And we also didn't have any promising young players where you can be like, oh, well, the team stinks, but like, I'm still going to tune in to like watch Zach Levine or, or something like that. It was we didn't we didn't have any of those guys um and and that changed you know the past couple of years and then we cashed those pieces in for ad 
So it, it wasn't the normal, we're going to slowly get better. It's not like Denver, where Denver's just kind of gotten around deeper every year. And, and they should feel really proud of what they've done. they've done. And they had a great year. And I see them being back in this position in the future because they have two excellent pieces that go well together, an excellent coaching staff. They need to figure out how the heck to deal with Jokic's foul issues and, and the fact that he had to be taken out of games for defense in, in game five of the Western Conference Finals. That's, that's not what the best big in the league looks like, but they, they nonetheless, they've had a great year. But just, I, I've done a lot of sitting around on Sunday, go to, go to a winery, um, relax a little bit, not have to dig into any film. I didn't log any possessions, but still we saw some great basketball. Like you said, unfortunately, uh, there were some injuries that were being worked through on the Denver side. Hey, some LA guys were a little banged up, but nonetheless, it's over. I think we can still learn some things from what we saw. And there were some things that we saw in game five that make me feel a bit better about the finals than I would have a couple of days ago or even a round ago. Listen, this is the, the Lakers exceptionalism podcast for a reason. You know, we had these expectations for the team based on talent. And this is what LeBron teams do when they get another superstar. The Cleveland made the finals the first year. Miami made the finals the first year. He knows it's going to be a bumpy road in that season once putting all the pieces together. But you put your best foot forward every game. Frank Vogel has a relationship with LeBron. Frank Vogel's doing different things. People think that LeBron's making all these coaching decisions. That's not completely fair, as, of course, he's going to control the game and have his input made on Frank Vogel. But you've got to give Frank Vogel credit for getting to the finals before Paul George, which is a great tweet. I'm wow. sorry I don't know who, who said that. But Frank Vogel also has as many series wins as Doc Rivers does in seven years coaching for the Clippers. So... This was not just given to the Lakers. Every series we've heard, the Lakers have the best two guys, but man, numbers two through seven, I don't know. Might be the Blazers. You know, you hear the same thing about the Rockets. Same thing about the Denver Nuggets. And then all these baller ass guards go out there, hit a three in our face, win a game, do some kind of shimmy, and then it's Lakers in five. So we saw this team build on this all season. You know, this isn't the same team that lost uh, opening night against the Clippers. I was watching just to see even what we would match up like against Miami. They look completely different. We're playing Quinn Cook as the first guard off the bench with Rondo Hurt. You know, Avery Bradley's playing a bunch. Troy Daniels is in the rotation. The Lakers put this together piece by piece, knowing KCP is going to start slow but once we get him into that rotation he could be our third most consistent player and he's been shooting the lights out like you got to give credit to everyone on the lakers staff everyone on the lakers roster for knowing their role trying to get out there do it buying into the adjustments over and over again and believing in anthony davis and lebron james to take you home like what we saw there in the final of like few minutes from lebron was lebron taking over a game being the best player in the world at 35 years old so, yeah, I watched the game again, just kind of not really tracking, you know, either. But I wanted to kind of react to some things that the Lakers did specifically, like we talked about in the game four preview um, or sorry, the game four post game. So one of the things was the Jamal Murray pick and roll we've been tracking. And I said that it's time to blitz this guy. And the Lakers did that early and they did it with some success, I thought. What did you think about how he reacted to getting that extra pressure from the Lakers. Yeah, I, I think he did what 
we saw James Harden do and what we saw Dame Lillard do. When you go after them with two guys, the right play is to get the ball out and let your team attack four on three. And you should hopefully be able to be smart and attack well in those situations. And LA showed this coverage last game. So it, it shouldn't have been completely new. I was surprised, frankly, to see that Denver wasn't a little bit more prepared and had more of an organized attack for it. But as soon as Nikola Jokic got into foul trouble and we started seeing Millsap or Michael Porter Jr. or Mason Plumlee, all these guys setting those ball screens, it was, you know, it was hunting season on going after Jamal Murray with those two guys, forcing him to get the ball out, not giving him options to try to beat us. And then rotating from there using our length, our athleticism, our scramble drill capabilities to recover from that point. Denver still missed some open threes. And I think on the series as a whole, I I think it's worth keeping that into perspective that it could have been a bit closer if they would have hit a little bit more of those. But we still did find success. We put guys in positions to be playmakers that weren't normally playmakers. And we made sure that Jamal Murray wasn't able to just be a one-man show with Jokic out of the game and hold Denver in in it in the same way or allow that incredible shot making we've seen in previous games to come out this game just because he had fewer opportunities because of that coverage. So I was thrilled to see that. I think it was situational when we ran it against Jokic as the screener. They burned it a couple times. But for the most part, we, we did it at the right times and it had great success. And I think what you saw the Lakers do as well in the second half was they did it a few times and kind of noticing Murray didn't have that explosiveness, but the Nuggets adjusted and Jokic wasn't rolling as hard and he wasn't popping to the three. He was popping to the short roll and he really killed us there with some kickouts to Jeremy Grant and good cuts for them. But that's the Nuggets offense. That's what they want to do, right? And once the Lakers kind of noticed that Murray what didn't have that explosiveness, they kind of reverted back to the like catch hedges that you talked about in the earlier parts of this series. And, you know, he really couldn't beat those either because he just didn't have that explosiveness that you're used to for him. But it took Jamal Murray being a superstar to keep the Nuggets in this series in the beginning of it. And, you know, I saw a really interesting stat that he's ran a few different marathons and I was looking at the data and he's running more than any other player on the court by far for both teams and playing every other day, you know, for 21, you know, straight fucking days. That's intense. That's props to those guys. They are legit. They deserve to be here. Lakers still one in five, but they deserve respect. And I'm excited to watch Jokic in the future because he's one of my favorite players in the league, uh, non-Lakers, of course. But, you know, the Murray really couldn't get going in this game and, and it really hurt the Nuggets. But Jokic was equally as ineffective because, you know, I was looking a little on Synergy and he didn't get a post touch until the second quarter. And I think for the game, he got something like five all game, like maybe less. He just, they, they didn't get there. Like he got that offensive foul on Caruso that got him his third. Mm-hmm. We had an awful shift from JaVale where he basically attacked him like three or four straight possessions and within got a bucket. Two minutes, mind yeah. you, within two minutes. Only foul. JaVale. Yeah. So, you know, once I'm glad Vogel adjusted quickly to that as well. That was he had the quick leash on on JaVale, which was nice to see. But yeah, Jokic couldn't get a game flowing in this game. Uh, He couldn't get into his rhythm, into his spots. And he was taking a lot of jumpers, trying to attack the Lakers from outside. Is there anything different you saw the Lakers schematically attack Jokic to kind of mitigate his advantage in the post? 
Uh, not that really stood out to me. It seemed as though Denver more shifted their method of attack rather than um, the, the Lakers doing anything specific against it. I, I think we still saw some of the same off-ball switching and, and little things like that if he were to get a mismatch, but he, he wasn't as assertive in the post as I would have hoped for Denver. There were a couple of possessions where he did try to be, and, and I thought that was the right way to go, but as a whole, he seemed a little off his game, and the fact that he played 30 minutes in this game compared to Grant played 46, Murray played 43, that means that he probably lost out you know, 12 to 15 minutes of playing time based on his foul coverage. And a lot of that time came in the, the first and second quarters that he he otherwise would have been playing. So we saw, like, even if Jokic would have fouled out in, in like, the middle of the third quarter, he probably would have played more minutes than he ended up playing in this game with, with them resting him out of precaution. So, I don't know. He, he, LA did a pretty good job on him, keeping him in foul trouble, going at him, I think, was smart. I think we actually saw more... Plumley used uh, actually in the post a little bit and, and then as a lob guy to get a couple fouls on AD. I think that was smart from Denver. Go go at Anthony Davis early in the game. See if you can get him in foul trouble. That was something we talked about last pod. But I don't know. This, this was another game where they kind of did their thing, but it wasn't quite effective enough. And if you look at Jamal Murray, he, he shot seven for 17. He had, he had five turnovers. Overall, he had more possessions than points. So he wasn't all that efficient. Um, he still had eight assists, but being able to hold him down a little bit and then keeping Jokic out of the game just from a, a playing time standpoint, I think really helped the Lakers hold down this Denver offense that had two quarters where they scored 30 points or more, but then they had a 21-point quarter in the second quarter and a 23-point quarter in the fourth quarter. So Ellie really locked them up on that end, and, and I was happy. On the other side of, of the court, when the Lakers were attacking on offense, we saw L.A., after implementing some of those adjustments we talked about before last game and really getting Denver to stop pre-rotating like we had spoken about, where they would send their big guy over early to get in charge-taking position on a drive, they, they stopped doing that based on what we did last game. And this game, they were still going under LeBron's ball screens and they were still stunting hard with their wings. So if LeBron did try to drive, he was seeing a wall in front of him. To combat that, we, we saw the Lakers take steps forward this game that they didn't do last game that really helped, I think, unlock LeBron. And especially, I think it was in the second quarter, we saw him just attacking the rim relentlessly because the Lakers ran actually something that we've talked about on this pod, like exactly what we talked about they ran, where they would run a pick and roll. But instead of letting the defense go under that ball screen, we would have it set behind the defender while LeBron is crossing half court and attacking downhill. Or instead of, if we were already in the half court, instead of going side to side, we would try to flip that screen, get behind that defender, and then let LeBron attack downhill. So that combats one of the the three things that they were doing. And then instead of having to deal with any stunting wing defenders, which in the past we had combated with some pin and flare screens, but it still clogs the paint up a little bit. What we did instead was just remove those players from the wings. So LeBron was driving into what we call a double gap where he was at the top of the key. Let's say he's driving to his right. There's a man in the right corner, but there's nobody at the right wing. So there's no defender there to cause any issues for him. So instead of trying to manipulate that guy in some way um, or make him pay, if he does try to try to play that uh, um, play in that gap, we instead just removed all of the players from there, gave LeBron a clear driving lane. 
And then we still had a player in the weak side dunker spot in case they did try to pre-rotate. We could throw that lob. So we ran this not just one or two times, which I think if, if we would have run this once and then had 10 plays where we didn't use it and then ran it again, I don't think that would have made a huge impact on the game. One, because you're not throwing your, your, your best attacks out there and you're not scoring as many points as you could be. And two, because, because you're not doing that, it doesn't force Denver to have to adjust. But because LA was attacking that going under ball screens coverage, attacking the fact that uh, Denver was trying to uh, run those stunts and making sure that Denver couldn't go back to that pre-rotating, we saw LeBron suddenly appear aggressive. He got to the rim. He was scoring. He was drawing fouls. He kind of snaked that a couple times to get to the right side of the court where there was no stunting wing defender. So we saw very purposeful, intelligent offense from the Lakers that made LeBron look like he had just flipped a switch when really it was this one little schematic thing that that really attacked brilliantly several different aspects of what Denver had been doing tactically to really enable LeBron to be that beast that we know he can be. And because we saw LA go to this again and again and again, that resulted in Denver changing their ball screen coverage altogether and then switching, which kind of changed everything because Denver hadn't really been doing that all that much before this game in the series. And after that point, after a little bit, we saw LA start changing their offense to go hunt some mismatches and get LeBron to attack Michael Porter Jr. or Jamal Murray or Nikola Jokic and then attack players that way while still doing some of these other things. So still remove that guy at the wing so they can't stunt, still have that guy in the dunker spot. But then instead of using a ball screen, just have LeBron try to beat that weaker defender, maybe draw a foul and and look to attack the rim that way. So Really smart from LA. There were a couple other things we did that we can mention, but uh, those were that was one of the big ones that, for me, was a higher level takeaway that LA finally figured out how to beat those remaining aspects of what Denver had started doing since uh, the second half of Game Two that had been slowing everything down and making it look like LeBron couldn't be aggressive or couldn't get to the rim and truly was impacting his efficiency. On those drives that you describe, where. McGee or Howard or Morris a few times comes up and sets like that flat angle ball screen. What they also did a few times really effectively was have Caruso or KCP drop down to screen this for the screener. Mm-hmm. And that just gives them an extra second, gives LeBron an extra step to get going downhill. And I don't think that's a coincidence that they did it at that time at the beginning of the second quarter when Jokic already had two fouls. So that's an adjustment that, is double honey, right? If you can pull this off, it's advantageous in multiple ways. It puts pressure on Jokic to make defensive plays at the rim without fouling, which he's already has a hard time doing. He's got to get better at not fouling and knowing not to foul Anthony Davis on the fast break and the beginning to take away that layup. You just have to know. If I'm going to get six fouls in a game, they all have to be in defense of a rim of a shot, trying to use verticality to my advantage because I can't jump fast. So Mm -hmm. I have to go up straight, you know, he's worth more than that, that foul. You you can't let yourself be taken out an extra five minutes for one foul or an extra 10 minutes for one foul because it's worth more than two points to Denver. So I'm, I'm with you. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And just kind of jumping in as well to some other things the Lakers did at the end of the game that worked really well was we saw that like a double drag screen from KCP and Howard where LeBron would go use those screens. KCP pops, Howard rolls, and they were really getting a good advantage on those plays. Danny Green got a nice three kind of doing a double high where LeBron can choose the direction he goes, but mm-hmm. the same principle applies. Danny Green pops and Howard rolls and it it worked. They were going under his screens and LeBron hit some really, really nice mid-range jumpers that weren't falling for him in the beginning part of the series. But with any other tactical adjustments uh, we can point to is for the Lakers coming out of the victory with the victory in this one? No, I think you hit that one other big one. And and we got to see those double drag ball screens where, where they have the two players setting the screen from the same side or those, I would call it almost a twin ball screen where there's one guy setting a screen on each side of LeBron's defender where he can pick the direction. We saw that and we also saw, I'd call it a, we, we call it a ram action where somebody is setting a screen for the eventual screener. So so we saw like AD would set a screen for Dwight and then Dwight would run up and set a screen for LeBron. And that's normally, so, so that action is something that generally does, it, it happens. Usually you don't see two bigs running it because if you do have two bigs running that action, that's an automatic switch for the defense. But the Lakers knew that and they purposefully ran that because they wanted the switch because they wanted Jokic who was guarding AD instead of Howard in, in some of these possessions to end up being the guy who would run up and uh, have to be in that screening action rather than, I, I forget who, it might have been Millsap or, or, or Grant, potentially. So the Lakers used a common NBA action, a, a smart NBA action, instead of having Rondo or KCP or somebody like that set that screen for Howard, they were, had AD set that screen hoping that Denver would switch so that they can get the right players in in that action. So they were hunting that mismatch in little smart ways because Denver was trying to avoid getting Jokic in those scenarios, especially because he was in foul trouble. So we saw that. That was purposeful. And those double drags in those twin ball screens were run because the LeBron, Dwight Howard, just normal spread ball screen wasn't working. And the reason it wasn't working was because the defense was going under LeBron's screen and they were also dropping, so Dwight couldn't really roll or get any lobs. And the paint was a little packed, and having three players, um, having two players on the same side, same wing, allowed the defense to zone up and drop a guy in to make sure that that Dwight roll couldn't get anything. So what LA did was by sending the second player up into that action, either both sending the screen from the same side in that, that double drag or from both sides, that meant that three of the five defenders were up at the top of the key. And then you had two offensive players in the corners with their defenders there. So then when LeBron tries to turn the corner or Dwight's rolling, there suddenly isn't a situation where the defense can zone up really easily and then just look to the, to recover. It's either giving up a lob or giving up those corner threes if you do decide to tag or giving up a switch, which is what the Lakers were, were happy to take. So LA used some really smart actions that, in their own right, are good plays, but I want us to recognize why they were smart plays in this situation, in this game. And and that was just more brilliance from Vogel and his staff. I, I really, I was really impressed. We've, this is our third series of the playoffs, and I'd love to talk about coaching in a second here, but over the first two series, 
we didn't see Houston or Portland try to play chess with the Lakers. So it was hard to really grade out how strong Vogel and his staff were with these things. But this series, we saw Denver play ball. We saw Denver try to play chess and the Lakers just stayed one step, one step ahead of them in, in most of these areas. So I leave this series with more confidence in that tactical ability of Vogel and his staff than I entered the series with and more than I entered last game with because we saw within the same game some of those quick adjustments. If you think back earlier to the series, Denver started running some of their tactical adjustments at the second half of game two. We didn't really adjust to it then, which is fine. If you don't adjust in-game, it's not great, but it's not the worst. But then we went into game three without having a game plan for those, and that was really where I was frustrated. Then in game four, we knew what we were doing. And yesterday in game five, that's when we saw LA knew, know exactly what they were doing. So, so we had seen a little bit of a delay from Vogel and his staff at adjusting. But in this game, we saw that dynamic back and forth that for somebody like me is just the most fun thing to watch because it's that game within the game. And it makes me feel really, really good about the, the coaching staff that we have on this team. I would agree on most counts, but I do think that Dwight started at the second half in game one of this series. And I think Marquise started at the second half of game two. So I do think he is quick to make those adjustments. I do want to bring up those points at least. Mm-hmm. However, I if you're grading, which we've done, we you know keep that tradition alive. I it has to be an A. I I think the Lakers could have swept if they had adjusted earlier than at the end of game three, you know, with with the nice run they had, kind of mixing things up with the three-two zone that gave them a chance to to take the series with a sweep. But if they had made adjustments to fix that horrible second quarter run that we gave up in game three, this could be a sweep, you know. So I think it has to be an A, but I might tag on a minus. I might just stick with an A because they beat a good team in five games. And I think that Vogel overall, yeah, I'm excited to see coach. We didn't always have someone who did things like this, who also got guys to buy in. These are vets who, you know, JaVale's won a ring. He has been a part of a team and he knows professionally I'm not going to be able to play this series. And he took it well for the Rockets. He gave us a couple good minutes here and there throughout the series, but I think he overall got played off the court. And if he's useful, uh, again, it's to Miami or Boston, he will, you know, be ready, I guess. So we'll see. If the Lakers come out with their starting five, which they had all year, which I think they probably will do, I might be a little frustrated by the first half of, game one of the finals but overall Vogel gets an A of my book and I think Malone did well but I think he also was a little late to adjust to some of these things that the Lakers were giving them but what are your thoughts on both coaches as far as grading them straight up yeah I I thought this was a great series um or this was at least the best series we've seen so far in terms of that adjustment battle certainly better than the first two um one one uh, little tidbit I want to throw out there we had spoken last podcast about how the percentage of the minutes that Jokic faced uh, either McGee or Howard was 71% in game one, and then it went down into the 60s in game two, and then it went down into the 50s in game three, and then in game four, it went right back up to 71, tying game one for the highest. 
in this game, 98% of Jokic's minute Jokic's minutes were against Laker lineups that had yeah. McGee or Howard out there. And it was almost all Howard because McGee only played two yeah. minutes. So it, it felt like it too. It was good. It was exactly. like you we were calling for all series. Like yeah. Dwight Howard, as soon as Jokic comes in, you're in. As soon as he goes out, you're out. It was yeah. Good it was call. perfect. It was it was beautiful. And I do think that Vogel is willing to make the right adjustments. We didn't see an adjustment this series to starting Howard until we lost. And in some of these respects, I think Vogel, sometimes he's late because the tactics are, are, are more difficult and, and it's hard to recognize the right way to go and then implement it with only an off day. With the personnel things, he's in general been a little bit slower to react and kind of almost needed a push for some of them. It, it took last series just JaVale looking unplayable for a stretch for them to finally really commit to playing small. This series, it took until losing a game to really commit to to starting Dwight. And then from there, we really ramped up more and more and more as we saw more success, even though all of those indicators were there earlier on in the series. It's it's almost a case of the coaching staff looking for like statistical evidence or very clear de- de- you know decisions when you really need to be able to make quick decisions in ambiguous situations and you're not going to be able to have huge sample sizes of data with with these playoff series so you need to be able to think on your feet and we've seen that in some respects we've seen them be a little bit more conservative in others if i look at trying to grade them overall i would say that i don't know if i were to rank the the games of the series in terms of how good the game plan was i think the one we just saw game five was definitely the best game four was probably second best Game one, I'd say, was a good game plan. That was probably third best. Game two was a good game plan, but then we didn't really adjust to what Denver threw at us in the second half, which is fine. And then game three was really the only game plan of this series that I just wasn't happy with. One, because on offense, we we that was this was the one game where we refused to run those switches when Jamal Murray strung out our hard hedges or our catch hedges. So I thought that was a step in the wrong direction, and we corrected that later. But then on defense we didn't really, even after an off day, didn't really respond well and have the right adjustments to those four things that Denver was doing that we've sp- spoken about a couple of times with the going under screens and the paint packing and the pre-rotating and the stunting. We didn't have answers. So that was, I think, really our only bad game plan of this series. Um, overall, I think I'd, I'd give our starting game plan from game one like a B plus, given what we knew and what was happening. Our adjustments were pretty good other than with game three. I think in terms of the effectiveness of the adjustments we ran, I would give Vogel an A. In terms of the timeliness of those adjustments, I'd say maybe it was more like a B or a B plus. Um, it wasn't too late. It was late enough that maybe versus Boston or Miami, it might cost us some more games, but it was quick enough. And we saw it at peak form in game five with those in-game adjustments that I can still feel pretty good about it. So I'd say overall, I would give Vogel maybe an A- minus for this series. I thought Malone did a very good job. Um, they were out-talented. They had guys playing hurt. I don't think, I never felt this series was really truly in doubt unless the Lakers just didn't adjust. But I think they, as Denver, they came into this attacking the right things of the, that the Lakers did and running the right adjustments and asking the right questions and when the Lakers did respond and, and Denver had to go to plan B or plan C, it really just kind of exposed their personnel against our personnel. Once once we forced them to just start switching 
and we could start hunting switches in game five, that's when you knew when they didn't have anything left and they couldn't really turn to a zone or anything. That's when I knew that this series was probably over. Even if they did win yesterday and this was pushed to a sixth game, they would have had to pull a rabbit out of a hat and have a new tactic to throw out there because we had them figured out. Regardless, though, I, I would still give Malone probably a, a B for this series overall because I, I think they did some of the right things. They just didn't have the talent and, and they didn't have the second or third options from a tactic standpoint to be able to push this any further than they did. But overall, still a very well-coached series and probably among all of the Western Conference and all of the playoffs uh, on in the West, this was probably the best coached series and the be- most interesting series from a tactic standpoint that I've seen. It's going to be fun trying to look at the tape and see if Miami or Boston matches up better in one area or another and just really getting into that. I'm not convinced this series is totally over for multiple reasons. I think Miami's prone to being able to struggle on offense uh, despite their exceptional defensive lineups they have. We've seen Jay Crowder regression hit, and that has severely hurt them, despite Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson really stepping up in the last few games. But I guess just where your confidence is for this Laker team, regardless of matchup, before we get deep into the weeds for really diving into Miami or Boston, I'm very confident. I think the Lakers still have the two best players left in the bubble for any team. And if they play like that in the role players, just don't screw it up. I feel like the Lakers will be the favorite over either team. But what's your confidence of the Lakers? Just they all say, right, job's not finished. That makes me more confident in that. They realize this is not something to celebrate yet. So how are you feeling about next round? I'm feeling pretty good. And I feel more confident about facing teams coached by Brad Stevens or even even more so Eric Spolstra in those finals after the round that we just saw from LA. And, and especially after the past couple of games. If you were to check my pulse after game three, when the Lakers ran a really terrible game plan and, and weren't adjusting, I would have not felt nearly as good as I do right now. If you would have checked in with me a series ago after Houston, but before this past round, I would have had positive, optimistic feelings, but would have told you that, hey, we really just don't know how this is going to look from a coaching standpoint just because we haven't seen the Lakers really challenged. And the Lakers were doing the right things in the first couple rounds, but they never had to really go to a plan B. We never had to see them go from playing chess to playing checkers. And, and that's what we're going to have to play in the finals. So no matter who we face, from a coaching standpoint, I feel a lot better now than I did a couple of days ago or a week ago or two weeks ago. Regardless of who we play, I do feel as though LA should be the favorite. Like you said, we have who I would believe are, are also the two best players in the playoffs um, from like an impact standpoint, looking at their player impact plus minus. They've certainly been the best two players of the playoffs. And... I do have a favorite for who I would prefer to play if we are purely looking at this from a who does LA match up better against standpoint. And and I still have tons of prep work to do. And, and the next podcast will be really digging into some of the more granular details. And we can look at, hey, should we play big? Should we play small? How do we attack the 2-3 zone if, if it's Boston or Miami? Or how do we defend Boston's wings, yada, yada. But just my my high-level thoughts are that our defense... Is, is And this is the way I like to think about it. I, I think our offense with the players we have in, in our ability to adjust and the fact that we have AD and LeBron James, 
we'll be okay no matter which team we face. The zone throws a wrench into things, but we were talking before we started recording and even with Miami being a very different team the last time we played them, we saw LA attack the 2-3 zone with a pretty good degree of competence to the point where where your brother, Pete, like your film room, even made a video about here's how LA broke down that 2-3 zone. I think that the 2-3 zone has looked a little scary against Boston. Boston really sucked against the zones that Toronto threw at them. So I wasn't entirely surprised to see that they've struggled a little, a little bit. Getting Hayward back has been a big boost to them. But in looking at how they've succeeded or failed against the zone, this was kind of how I looked at uh, OKC's bigs playing Houston and saying, hey, if if those little guys, if uh, Steven Adams can be doing what he's doing on the offensive boards and, and, and not be a lob threat, but still be able to score inside on these tiny guys, imagine what Dwight Howard might be able to do or JaVale McGee. This is that same sort of thing where if Boston is able to attack this zone the way they are with some degree of success, I feel even better about the way we're able to do it because we have better personnel with our playmaking with LeBron and, and to a lesser extent, AD, along we with the AD that we have. AD is the zone buster, man, like almost by himself. If he can learn to make those reads and just live in the mid-range and just mm-hmm. get those open jumpers. Otherwise, if they do play JaVale and Dwight, you know, we have better verticality than Boston does. So we yep. can be even better at those things. You know, mm-hmm. they're probably better cutters than we are as far as get, being able to finish, you know, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum at the rim, get fouls. But we can still hopefully get enough threes from that and break down the defense enough to where these guys are getting shots and LeBron can still get to the rim, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I feel good about our offense either way. When I look at the defense, I'd say that our defense is really strong guarding defending guards and defending bigs and also in the scramble drill situations. We we have been uh, a little bit lucky these playoffs to not really see uh, or face a team so far that really has had those dynamic wing scores because our, our wing defense, those wing stoppers, that is where I still have question marks for this Laker team. And if we play Boston, that is going to be the big question. Miami has Jimmy Butler. He is a wing. He's a scoring wing. He's, he kind of plays more like a, a shooting guard than a small forward, but he is one of those sorts, sorts of guys. But then if you look at Boston, they have those those players at like in volume. They have Tatum. They have Brown. They have Hayward. Smart is a, a bigger guy who will be able to bully our guards around a little bit. Throw in Kemba Walker, a dynamic scoring guard. And, and we can certainly attack these guys on defense in specific ways, and they definitely have their weaknesses. But in terms of just how our personnel stacks up against each of those two teams, I feel better about how LA will defend Goran Dragic and what he's good at and not good at. How we'll defend Bam Adebayo, how we will defend Duncan Robinson, um, Tyler Hero. These are guys who do specific things that LA is, from a personnel standpoint, well-equipped to be able to defend. If we go to, to defending Boston, we suddenly are in a more ambiguous situation where when we talk about like a zone against Miami, there are answers to that. There are tactical answers. There are little things we can do and we have the personnel to attack it and we'd be fine. In defending Boston, we may be at the point where it's like, shoot, one of these big wings is going to be defended by KCP or or Rajon Rondo or some of these guys who I don't feel all that great about, but those matchups are just going to exist and they have enough guys there that are able to create their own shots um, and and they're able to use in smart ways and find the right mismatch and attack it that we're more tied from an X's and O's standpoint with our hands. And that just makes me feel less comfortable. So 
Miami's very good. They're very well coached. But uh, I think we line up well against what they have. Boston is a little bit scarier of a matchup. And I think now that we're seeing Gordon Hayward back and we're seeing what they're able to do against Miami now that they weren't able to do earlier in the series speaks a little bit to that. If Miami can escape that series, I, I would feel pretty good about the Lakers in the finals. And even if Boston makes it out, I think it'll be a dogfight in the finals, but I would still have the Lakers favored. So I feel good. I definitely feel way better about Miami. Um, there's still plenty to dig into. It won't be easy either way. LA will have to bring their A game, but they, we won't face a situation with Miami where we just say, what do we do? How do like, there's just nothing we can do against this. Whereas against Miami, we will have those answers. And the Lakers will have at least a couple more days of rest here. If the game tonight ends the series, this uh, finals will start on Wednesday. If not, I believe they start on Friday. Mm -hmm. So with AD nursing a little bit of a ankle tweak and LeBron complaining about a little knee contusion, I think he got a bruise from a couple games ago when he hit knee to knee with someone. But that's nice. That does not hurt. I also think these guys are probably ready to go home you see this team very locked in and i was impressed that they could keep it to five games like i mentioned before i wouldn't be surprised if the nuggets could have come out in this and stolen another one but the lakers are focused and that just gives me all the confidence of the world seeing like i mentioned in the top seeing lebron locked in everyone echoing that the job is not finished and them being ready to take this challenge on i think rondo probably is going to want to beat his old team in the Boston Celtics. And I think if they get the Miami Heat, Rondo's probably going to want to beat the team that beat him with LeBron. And either way, they're going to find ways to make this personal. Obviously, the Lakers-Celtics matchup will definitely be favored by the league, and that would be absolutely glorious to beat them for the 17th championship, tying them for the most all-time in the NBA. But... Either way, it's going to be a difficult challenge, as you mentioned, with both extremely intelligent and experienced coaches. I would prefer Stevens. I think Spolstra has outcoached the Celtics to this point, but I think the personnel scares you a little bit more like you laid out. Multiple guys that you can throw at LeBron. I think Anthony Davis is still going to have a size mismatch, and he's going to be able to, to get his shots up, but he might have to dominate with these younger guys really being able to pick and dig at LeBron, they're going to keep going under. He made some jumpers tonight, but that's going to be the book on LeBron. They're going to see that the Nuggets were able to steal another game, and either of these teams are going to play their bigs. You know, We're not seeing Myers Leonard from Miami anymore, but you're going to see Bam start at the five, and that's probably going to force the Lakers to play small. And that's kind of where the Lakers have struggled in these last few series, or excuse me, these last few games. Obviously, they played quite well against the, uh, Rockets with their small ball lineup but it's a little bit different with the amount of shooting and defense that the Heat have and then the, the amount of length and ability to get to the rim that the Celtics have the Celtics I think it's probably easier for you to play JaVale and Dwight in those series but I'm curious what you think as far as what our strengths are going to have to be what kind of basketball do you think is going to beat the Miami Heat let's start with them mm-hmm. I, I will definitely have a better answer for you in, in 48 hours. But my sure, sure. Right no, now, this is for preliminary call, yeah. Yeah, my preliminary call would be that, like you said, if if Bam is playing the five and you have, what, Jay Crowder or like Solomon Hill playing the four, 
if we match up with them and play small, I, I think we match up well with them. If we do decide to play big, I would look at how they might need to defend us and think that that might be a series where either we have a great lob threat and we we will have a size mismatch. If they keep playing small but we're playing big, it might force Miami to play zone. And if they're playing zone, I would rather be playing big anyway because then you have those lob threats out there. So I almost see playing, and, and again, this may change in, in a day or two when I dig into the film, but at least from an early look at, at attacking the zone or attacking Miami's personnel and defending Miami's personnel, I'm less worried about having AD defending Jay Crowder or Dwight Howard defending Jay Crowder than I am feeling advantageous about how their fours and fives would defend our fours and fives if we do play big and possibly forcing them to play zone. So that's something I'll be investigating further. Uh, There are specific ways that Miami likes to attack in their ball screens, um, and they have specific weaknesses and there are specific coverages that I, I'm not going to give any way, anything away yet, but we're not facing Jamal Murray. We're not facing Dame Lillard or James Harden. We are suddenly going to be facing a team where there is a right answer that is an easier situation to, to be in for the screen coverages that we can be running. Um, and I think, I mean, I believe Goran Dragic is their their highest scorer of the playoffs so far. If we can be running the right scheme coverages against him um, and, and taking some of that away, and I think we have the personnel to defend him, I like our odds. But I think LA will continue to look to play fast. I think we should be looking to press our athleticism, our size, our length, um, uh, trying to attack some specific defenders they have, whether they're playing man or zone we should be able to attack poor, weak defenders that they have. Dragic is not a good defender. Uh, Duncan Robinson is not a good defender. Tyler Hero is not a good defender at all. These are guys that LA can go after, and that bodes well for the Lakers, whereas against Boston, they don't have those weaker links nearly as much. It's more Kemba Walker, and then after that, there, there are less of those around. Whereas if we do play Miami, there will be numerous options for how we can look to go against them. And if we play big and they play zone and we can just go to the specific zones we want to have those mismatches, I think we're in a pretty good place. All right, man. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up here. I know we could talk all day about (laughs) Lakers in the finals, man. We could just talk about that. It's been so long. You know, it's been such a really intense year. And to have this for Laker fans is very very comforting right now i think is a good word for the uh the lakers in the finals it's it's right where we belong and that's where we are gonna be the lakers exceptionalism podcast coming to you for the finals coming up soon tim i'm excited man it's probably gonna be a solo pod for you next time because i gotta go do something but you know what man i can't wait to talk hopefully we'll get on just before uh or just after the game maybe we'll talk to you guys in a couple days man anything else you want to add before we bounce no, I don't think so. I, I don't. I, I definitely want to go about this the right way, dig into the film, break everything down, and then and then have those answers and bring all of that to everyone. This doesn't just. We're not just shooting off the cuff. Like ah, you know what? I've passively watched a couple of Miami games. Here's the way to beat them. It's it's dedicated, real film work, looking at the data. And and I do want to in that solo pod, I'm going to bring to to this audience some of those b-ball index stats that we've been working on with our player profiles where 
instead of just talking the film and the X's and O's, we'll also be able to say, hey, you want a quick scouting report on some of these guys? Here are some of their strengths. Here are some of their weaknesses. Here are some of the cool stats. So we have just so many resources available with that. That makes my job a lot, a lot easier from a scouting standpoint. In, in like there are literally NBA scouting departments, professional scouting services and NBA front offices that also use those for scouting. So we're going to be going to that next time. So stay tuned in. We're going to have all of those things for you guys to look at. So once we get to game one, whether it be against Miami on Wednesday or, or potentially Friday or Boston on Friday, you will be fully prepared, know exactly what to look for, be able to react to random little things that the, the people you're watching games with or the people on Twitter might not even be noticing. And that's that's where we're going to be. That's the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast, man. We're we're number one uh, and, and we're here to prove it. So I'm pumped. I, I just Twitter will be ablaze if if we win these finals. And I am so here for it. We just Twitter has not seen Laker Twitter at its full force. And we just have not been this good ever since Twitter's been around. So I am just excited to hopefully win that series and then sit back and, and watch the fireworks. Absolutely, man. We're excited to bring some more awesome Lakers content to you. I think we did a great job covering this series and really reacting, predicting a lot of the things we would see. So come back again. Please subscribe. Rate us five stars. Really did a good job last week. I want to thank all y'all because we got us into like the top 200 and sports, which is crazy. But I know their Apple's algorithm's weird. But if you could follow us, just give us a shout out on Twitter. We like talking basketball. So we'll be back soon. Uh, Talk to you guys next time. Go Lakers. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.